Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Hibba Murray, ILSR's Communications Manager, taking over for Nick Stumalanger, who recently started grad school. I'm really excited for you to hear this week's podcast. My guest this week is Chris Mitchell, a frequent guest and host on the show and the director of our Community Broadband Initiative. This week, we'll be talking about what's going on in the world of internet access. Chris, welcome back to Building Local Power. Thanks, Hibba. I was I was tempted to issue a quick boo for Nick leaving to go on and further his education, um, but I didn't want to disrupt you and bother you in your first uh, first episode in. <laughs> yeah, we wish Nick all the best and definitely want to encourage him um, to do the awesome work that he's doing. Yeah, I, I guess I, I wouldn't deny him the same education that I got. He's gone on to the uh, the Humphrey School for Public Affairs, where the University of Minnesota, where John and I went. So um, I wish him the best. Miss him a lot. Yeah, you can't be too mad at him. <laughs> it's been a while since uh, we've talked about community broadband on building local power. So I wanted to kick off this episode with just talking about the state of affairs in community broadband. Um, how does where we are today compare with where we were two or three years ago and what kind of growth have you seen? Well, we're definitely two or three years later than we were two or three years earlier. That's for certain. Now, it's an interesting question, two or three years. It's the right timeline because that was when we started to see an upsurge of interest in community networks, um, which I would include both cooperatives and municipal networks under that um, label, Um, cooperatives being more common in rural areas and uh, municipal networks being more common in more urban areas. Uh, We tend to think of both of them as community networks. Um, and, and both of them were seeing tremendous rise. In, in co-ops, it's, it's a bit more rapid, I'd say. But in the uh, municipal space, we've seen a lot of interest and a fair amount of more investment. Um, so we've seen a lot more cities considering these investments, um, but we haven't seen the same level of rise of them building them, although we have continued to see an increase of new cities building networks. So as all of these communities are doing that, can you think of any examples that really jump out at you? One of the things that to keep in mind is that there's so many different models. And so in Colorado, Longmont is incredibly exciting. They were one of the first citywide fiber optic networks, a municipal network that's citywide and fiber optic that did not do television. Prior to that, uh, of the cities that had done this, and there's roughly 30 or 40 networks that predate Longmont in our citywide and fiber optic, um, some of those actually serve many cities, which is how we get into the number of communities that have municipal fiber networks. Um, but Longmont was one of the first that actually did not do television. And it proved that you could do this in certain areas with the right business model uh, with um, gigabit-only service, basically. So they offer a telephone product and internet access. And through that, now you can get Hulu and Netflix and all that other stuff. But that business model is definitely taking off over the past two or three years. Now, another business model, which has very low risk um, in an approach, is what the city of Ammon in Idaho has done. We've covered that very closely. And that's very exciting because it demonstrates how the cities can um, move forward on, a, on an incremental and somewhat slower basis than if they were to bond and borrow a lot of money. But you can get your toes in the water and get a sense of what the community reaction really is um, by financing it with uh, assessments on the home where you have homeowners that are excited to take part in this. 
So there's a number of different financial models that are still growing. I think you know we should be thinking of this as um, municipal networks are still relatively young as an idea, um, or municipal fiber networks in particular. I think we're going to see continued growth and, and, mat- and uh, maturing in this area. That's great. Yeah, I actually was just checking out um, the video that LSR put out on Ammon um, a few days ago before this, and it's definitely an awesome resource that we have, and we'll link to that um, on the page for this show. Right, actually, and I'll just I'll plug our site fiberfilmfestival.com, where um, we actually just created a URL with um, several very high quality videos that we've done around municipal broadband, and then we added a couple of other really good documentaries that we didn't produce, but we think are are really related for people who are interested in in those sorts of things. Um, just because it's easier to remember than going to ilsr.org and searching around. Yeah, that's great. We can also put a link to that um, in the show page for this episode of Building Local Power. So with the growth that we've been seeing and you've been talking about, how do you know um, that the broadband connection is actually high quality? Uh, I think there have been a a few studies that came out recently about how the fastest broadband isn't really coming from Comcast or one of these large monopoly service providers. Um, How do the community networks compare? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I did have um, advance notice of some of the questions, and I, um, that's actually what brought Longmont to the fore to my head because they've recently um, – well, first of all, they were considered the fastest network in the nation by – I think it was PC Magazine or it may have been a, a different study. Um, and they were rated the fastest network separately. So, um, you know, in terms of raw speed, um, you know, Longmont has been – has won in these tests, which I would say – actually are somewhat arbitrary and just um, an, op- an opportunity to create some clickbait. I mean, <laughs> cities aren't building this network just to brag. Um, they're building them to attract jobs. Um, you know, whenever you say something like that, if you're in this field, you might think of Chattanooga, which has brought billions of dollars of investment to the community Um Well, more than a billion, I should say. I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate it. Um, And, and they were the first city in the nation. And I actually think possibly the first city in the planet in which anywhere in the city and in a lot of the county that is surrounding the city, you can get 10 gigabit per second. And you can get that at a price that's cheaper than you can get even 100 megabit a second in a number of other areas. And that's a difference of of a of hundredfold uh, in terms of, of capacity. So to give people an idea, an idea um, there's a, a couple of ways that we can measure this. Um, one is just raw speed. And we certainly see, uh, um, uh, you know, very um, non-biased measures showing that cities are building networks that have very powerful speed. Um, we also know that Consumer Reports has said that Chattanooga is the best ISP as ranked by the uh, customers of ISPs. Now, Consumer Reports is a wonderful um, organization, Consumers Union, but they tend to focus on larger networks. So, you know, many of the municipal networks aren't even studied. In fact, the vast majority of them aren't a part of those studies. Uh, so, you know, I've visited almost all 50 states now um, in my lifetime. Um, I get around quite a bit. I've visited more than 30 to talk to people about municipal networks. And so I've met a lot of people and talked to them about their experiences and they're, they're very positive on it. 
And then a, a final piece of, of, of information that um, there's certainly more out there, but one that I'll just bring up is uh, the Harvard. Harvard has a, a center on technology and society called the Berkman Klein Center. And they did a study looking at pricing and found that the citywide municipal fiber networks do tend to price their services lower. And so we certainly see multiple lines of evidence showing that cities build networks faster at a lower cost, um, higher reliability, and greater customer satisfaction, um, which frankly makes sense because if people don't like the service they're getting, it's not just a matter of calling up and complaining. They actually vote. They vote on their city council members. They vote on the mayor. Um, if they're served by a cooperative that's doing a, a broadband network, then they can vote on the board there. These things are accountable in ways that that Comcast and uh, you know Charter Spectrum just are not. So we would expect them to be better, frankly. That's awesome. It's great to see um, Chattanooga placing among the other competitors that are um, really large. And hopefully we'll see more community broadband networks uh, really getting evaluated in that way and, and being showcased. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you touched on with um, people not being happy with the service that they're providing, that they're receiving and voting in order to um, change the people in power that have the decision-making abilities, right? And so I think Ammon, we, we highlighted that as a really interesting example of community broadband, of municipal broadband, because um, they're in a conservative town, but they still were able to have the political will to create this network. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how um, this is really a bipartisan issue and it, it doesn't have to only happen in certain political climates. Right. I would say at the local level, it's in, in some ways it's nonpartisan, which I, I think people are increasingly drawing a, a distinction between bipartisan and nonpartisan. Right. And so at the local level, we don't see a difference between Democrats, independents and Republicans on these matters. Um, most of the citywide municipal fiber networks actually are in areas that vote Republican. Um, now, that's in part because uh, we see more of them in smaller towns than we do in larger metros. Uh, because larger metros, there's less of a priority on improving internet access because they'll often already have a cable service that's um, at least decent in terms of providing um, residential service. Um, so the um, at the at the state level, we actually see more partisanship, and then at the federal level, we see extreme partisanship, which in many ways, you know, that's sort of what we see in in many fields right now. Um, but it's it's quite remarkable the difference between Republican attitudes when it comes down to a pragmatic local issue of solving this problem of internet access versus the federal issue where Republicans tend to be the ones that don't want cities to be able to build the networks that the Repub people who vote Republican are building across the country. Um, and so it's, it's, it's frustrating, but you know, I, I often don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm working in Ammon, I don't know if I'm dealing with a conservative or one of the admittedly relatively few um, more progressive type folks there um, because it doesn't come up. You know, it's not like people say my ideology tells me to, to do this. Um, you know, it's just more of a pragmatic decision of we understand that very large companies don't put our interests first. So we are going to solve this problem locally. And there's that. And it's not a matter of saying, therefore, I love Elizabeth Warren or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. 
Coming up next, we'll be talking about broadband issues and how they relate to current events. But first, a short break. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. This is the part of the show where you usually hear an ad or a message from our sponsors, but that's not really how it works here. We're a national organization that supports local economies, which means we don't accept national advertising. Please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does this support our podcast, but it helps us produce all the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute to go to ILSR.org slash donate. Any amount is welcome and really appreciated. That's ILSR.org slash donate. Thanks so much. And now back to the show. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us today. So let's start off with this next section um, about how broadband issues are happening in current events today. Um, The midterms are coming up in just a few short weeks. uh, And I've noticed it seems like every election cycle, Colorado seems to have a ballot initiative about community networks um, for folks to vote on. Why is this a theme for them? And are there other states using ballot initiatives in the same way um, as Colorado is? You know, I have to say just before I answer the question that as you mentioned, the elections were coming up. I think my blood pressure tended to go up a little bit. And then you brought it back to Colorado and I, I relaxed a little bit because it's such a it's a beautiful state. <laughs> so and a lot of great people there. Um the um but Colorado is pretty unique uh, in this in this broadband uh world because they passed a state law in uh, two thousand five, I wanna say, uh which basically took local decision making on broadband issues away from local communities. And that was very strongly pushed by the company that's now CenturyLink, but it was then US West, which got gobbled up by Quest, which got gobbled up by CenturyLink. So, you know, sort of the same lineage with the that reminder of the consolidation that we see. But if a city or a county or even um, other kinds of political jurisdictions in Colorado, if they want to do a partnership, if they want to build their own network, if they even just want to really explore the issue, they basically have to pass a referendum to reclaim local authority. Very few other states have that. Um, Iowa does have something similar to that if you want to set up a telecom utility. Um, but other states, we have not seen that. Now, in some of the western states where they have a stronger tradition of ballot initiatives, there's people who have wanted to put a proactive kind of um, a ballot initiative on the ballot. And it may not even carry the day in terms of if it passes, the city would be obligated to do something, but it would give cover or or really give energy to those on the city council that would want to do something. Um, so that's some of the ways that we see some ballot politics happening. Um, you know, but in Colorado, we've seen more than 120 now local jurisdictions opt out of that state law. And still, even with that obvious, I mean, just incredible level of support for regaining local authority, the state legislature has not been willing to really go so strongly against CenturyLink to get rid of it. Uh, I think the cable and telephone companies are very good at making sure that there's nothing that goes through the state legislature that will um, significantly change the market or result in a better choice for uh, a lot of people. Speaking of Western states that um, opt into ballot initiatives a lot, California has been in the headlines a lot lately for passing statewide net neutrality. Can you talk about the implications of how that works and uh, if you think it'll be catching on in the rest of the states? 
That's a it's a really good question. Um, I mean, in California, I mean, it's not just kind of like in the headlines a bit on this issue. It seemed like that was the main issue of people who are following this, um, in you know, following broadband policy. Um, because the governor had 30 days to decide whether or not to sign the bill after the legislature passed it. And AT&T, you know, you know I, I mentioned earlier about how it tends to be Republicans that, um, that are the ones that are trying to restrict local authority. But there's a number of states in which AT&T is just very good at pulling strings, and a lot of Democrats have gone along with it. So in, in California, we weren't quite sure how it would end up if— if AT&T, which famously hosts this magic major golf tournament as a major lobbying thing that every legislature member seems to, or general assembly member seems to love, um, you know, um, we were waited and, and, and Governor Brown kept us waiting and made his decision at the end of September and signed the bill. So um, California has basically reinstituted the rules uh, that the Obama administration created to preserve the open Internet. But they also went a little bit further than the FCC had gone. And it'll be interesting to see where that leads. I don't think anyone really has a sense of that. We know that there will be lawsuits. In fact, there already have been lawsuits to try to stop California. Um I don't know how many other state legislatures will follow along. I'm sure that there will be campaigns to have other state legislatures pass other kinds of bills. I think that we may see a lot of places adopt a wait-and-see attitude. So, um, you know, I would love to see this lead to more effort of people to to really change the state laws. I don't know that I would make it my campaign around the neutrality right now if we had a certain amount of political energy. I think I'd be looking more, you know, given ILSR's point of view, um, that um, the way we want to solve this is is by creating alternatives um, that are that are accountable to the community. Um, I think regulation is certainly better than nothing, but in the end, um, at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we strongly believe that market structure is a far better solution, one that encourages local businesses and locally accountable entities to um, be um, competing against each other and remove that incentive for a monopolist to control so much, the ability of a monopolist to control so much. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, how do municipal networks deal with the issue of, of net neutrality, speaking of local solutions, and why are they better than big telecom? Quick reminder, what net neutrality is, it's the idea that the network owner is going to tell you how to use the internet. Like if you wanted to use Netflix, the provider might say, you're going to have to pay more to be able to use that. Or if you want to use YouTube, um, that's our concern is the network owner basically as in Comcast or a charter spectrum telling you how to use your connection. And um, the issue of net neutrality has been one that's been a, it's been a concern for 15 years, but really rose to the fore um, during the Obama administration when they uh, instituted rules to ensure net neutrality. Um, it became more of a partisan issue and it kind of blew up out of space. But, but there's a lot of interesting implications for net neutrality happening right now. I, I don't want to say that, that local um, municipal networks are inevitably forever going to be good on net neutrality. Um, I think they have been. The evidence suggests that they have been. We've never come across a city that is violating net neutrality. And we don't expect cities to do that generally, particularly with they have fiber networks. Um, the older infrastructure where cities built cable networks, 
um, there might be, depending on who's running it, um, you know, uh, um, uh, at least consideration of violating net neutrality in order to um, prevent one or two people from using so much data that it impacts others. Um, so I would say that this is a this is an area that's a bit gray. Um, but there's two reasons that we don't expect cities to significantly violate net neutrality. Um, maybe even three or ten I could go through, but <laughs> I'll do the top few. One is that <laughs> maybe two um, is good. <laughs> I understand. Chris, you got to stop talking. We have to end the podcast at some point. Um, so one of the reasons is that the um, the cities that are building the networks, their maximum number of customers may be on the order of 10,000. It might be significantly less than that. When the you're purchasing the electronics gear that would allow you to violate net neutrality, to set up toll booths, to try to extract deals, um, that's uneconomical for smaller networks um, to try and to try and separate traffic in those ways. Um, generally, um, if you are a small network and you call up Netflix and say, "Hey, I'm going to hold you ransom. You have to pay me extra to get to my customers," um, and you have five thousand customers, Netflix is not going to return your call, right? I mean, the reason that we worry about Comcast and AT and T and others violating net neutrality is because they have tens of millions of customers, or more than ten million customers, and they have tens of millions of potential customers, and so Netflix has to respond to them if Netflix wants to be successful. Smaller networks, the 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 power dynamic is just totally different. And then the second piece of it is again, people want an open internet. They don't want their network owner to tell them how to use it. And if their network owner starts telling them how to use it and they can vote that person out, <laughs> they'll do that. Um, that's my strong suspicion. Um, but there's a, there's a final piece also that's worth saying, and that's that cities are generally building the best infrastructure possible because they're trying to um, maintain a, a business climate that is welcoming to new businesses and is really allowing existing businesses to thrive. So they have very big pipes. There is no reason that they would want to constrain that. They generally see their big pipes as an advantage. And so they have a different incentive than a provider like Comcast, which sees uh, an ability to sell more and to try to have an economy of scarcity, whereas the cities want an economy of abundance. So there's just, uh, there's just different incentives for smaller providers and in particular for small municipal providers. And let me just say that this is one of the reasons that though we're very supportive of publicly owned networks, I would be pretty skeptical of large state-owned or multi-state publicly owned networks because I'm afraid that the dynamic could be different. Um, and we like municipal networks at the scale that they're at generally now. So lastly on current events, let's talk about 5G. What's the buzz there? You know, I've heard a lot about um, people who live in big cities where it's starting to get available uh, are really excited about it. Uh, Verizon is doing a rollout of 5G right now. Um, but I've also read some things around how 5G could potentially worsen the digital divide and leave a lot of smaller communities, particularly rural communities, out. I think there's an article actually in Axios a few weeks talking about this. Is this something people are talking about? Are they aware of it? What are your thoughts? So the first thing to, to square away is that 5G is the next iteration of um, mobile wireless. You know, when you have your handset and it says 4G LTE right now or it just says LTE, uh, soon it will say 5G. 
Um, not for several years. Uh, Verizon, because it's very large, is doing um, what we're calling non-standards-based, which means um, the 5G standard is not ratified in, in the international committees and stuff like that. So there's no actual 5G stuff yet, despite the fact that there's all kinds of things being marketed as 5G. This is the eternal debate between the engineers and the marketers, the internal power struggle. Um, so just to be clear about that, that's kind of where we are. Um, but you're, as, you're, as you're saying, Verizon is rolling out in several different communities, um, in, in several different neighborhoods of communities, to be specific, not to the entire city of Sacramento immediately, but just some areas within there, for instance, and a few other places. They're testing this out to see what it's going to be like. And this is something that's exciting in terms of an iteration of wireless. It's going to make wireless better, much like... 4G has gotten better over the past five or six years or whatever it's been available in the market, um, 5G will continue to be better. Um, in fact, wireless is constantly getting better. It's just that arbitrarily they sometimes say, all right, we're going to call this next thing 5G rather than 4G.3 you know, or whatever. So it's exciting, but we're concerned about it because it's being overhyped and it's being used by some to suggest that because 5G will be better, it will provide better wireless, that maybe we don't need more wired choices in our homes. Maybe cities shouldn't be building networks. Maybe we shouldn't be developing government programs to expand into rural areas because wireless is going to be better in the future. I don't find that very persuasive. In general, 5G uses frequencies that are going to be poorer in rural areas to use, um, which is to say right now 4G uses towers that are high up off the ground and they go for miles. The signal goes for miles. 5G is going to be much faster, but the signal does not travel as far effectively. And so we're going to see more smaller radios more close to us in urban areas. In rural areas, if you wanted to do that, you'd have to take fiber really deep into the rural areas. And if you're going to do that, you might as well connect people with the fiber optic connection. Um, one of the things that I remember seeing was a study from a company called Vantage Point, which works with a lot of small ISPs and, and telephone companies, independent telephone companies. And they did a big study and said that 5G effectively delivers um, 20% of the benefits of fiber optic connections at 80% of the cost. And so, you know, this is something that even AT&T is responding to. And we see from their CFO statements that suggest that AT&T is recognizing that this is not a very good bet for their use of their money. Um, and so as people see all this stuff about 5G, um, I think you should not get very excited um, because even though it is very exciting, it's still pretty far off in the future before most of us will see the benefits of it. Um, but what's concerning is that the Trump administration is really taking a lot of local authority away from cities as to how cities can negotiate with companies like Verizon in striking these deals. Um, right now, schools often get tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars per year uh, from leasing out space to the wireless companies on top of their buildings. Um, they will soon not be able to do that. Instead, basically, the federal government is mandating that local governments give that away at a much lower cost. That means the rest of us will pay more for our schools and Verizon's shareholders will make more money. And, you know, I guess my, you know, my, my retirement savings might get a little bit of a boost from that. But I'd frankly prefer that the schools get the money now than that shareholders of Verizon end up 
making out better. Um, so, but this is a sort of dynamic we're seeing right now in the telecom space, where the, all this excitement around five G—it's uh, just un, unwarranted excitement given the timeline in which it'll be really deployed—is um, is using is being used as an agenda by some to steamroll local authority. Okay, so it sounds like 5G isn't the best bet. Guess I won't get too excited about that. Uh, I wanted to see if you had any reading recommendations. I I definitely do, and it's been too long since I've been on the show. I'm I'm just thrilled to to throw out a bunch. Of, honestly, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi lately and really enjoying it. I finally read the John Scalzi series that starts with uh, Old Man's War, and uh, boy, it's terrific stuff. Um, but I, there's two nonfiction books that I read over the over the late summer that just blew me away, and I want to recommend. One is um, is uh, We the Corporations, um, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights by Adam Winkler. It's a story that I think many of us think we know about the fight between um, American constitutional law and corporations, but frankly, the number of areas in which which I had it totally backwards. Um, I'm I'm stunned, and it was a book that was very eye opening. Um, I can't recommend that enough. Um, don't just read reviews of it; read the book. Um, and then the other book that, uh, again, I think I may have mentioned this in the past, but Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Um, who, frankly, is a person that I really hate recommending his books because I think he's a person that is incredibly difficult to to follow on Twitter, to see what he's doing. He's mean, you know, but he is very sharp. And his book, Fooled by Randomness, The Hidden Role of Chance in Life and in Markets, is is stunning and should be, frankly, forced down the throat of high schoolers, probably. Um, so I, I'm strongly recommending that as well, even though I'm nervous about giving him any more, <laughs> like power given his um his meanness that i've seen demonstrated awesome those are some really wholesome recommendations thanks for joining us today and hopefully we'll have you back again soon yeah i'll uh i'll have to start pulling my weight and in, in getting on these shows and hosting them thank you for picking up the slack Hiba. i really appreciate it no problem Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all the links to what we discussed today at ILSR.org by clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and gets us great guests like Chris. And it also helps us produce original research on the way that monopolies are impacting our economy. If you enjoyed listening, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Hiba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Hiba Murray, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.